0: i am surprisingly nervous. And it's weird for me to be nervous because I love, love to be the center of attention. I love it so much. And I'm a little bit concerned because I have these, all of these notes and there is not a single joke in here at all. And so I'm afraid that those of you that don't know me are going to think I'm like a serious person. I've been up here for two seconds and you know that I'm not a serious person. I'm gonna say some things that are uh, probably mildly inappropriate. I'm going to use some adult language and I'm gonna say some things that are definitely inappropriate. I don't know what gets set up here as a general rule on a Monday night. I apologize in advance. I'm really so grateful to be here. Um, You notice that hopefully when you came in that there's a table in the lobby about, um, it's a SafeNet table. I work at SafeNet. I'm the sexual assault advocate. So I see clients, uh, sexual assault survivors individually. And in groups and just offering uh, support and education and someone to walk along with you on your recovery journey. And I'm so grateful that I get to do that. So SafeNet, oh good, we have a slide. I didn't have this in my notes and I don't have it memorized. So let's look at it together. So SafeNet Services offers the following services free to victims and survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault and stalking. I wanna make sure that I point out that this is not just for women. The, The shelter is for anyone fleeing domestic violence, sexual assault, or stalking. All of our other services are free to anyone who has experienced domestic violence, sexual assault, or stalking. So we offer emergency shelter, survivor counseling, client advocacy, that's what I do, uh, protective order office, prevention education, supervised visits, and batterers intervention. So I have, uh, we have a lot of information on the card, no. On the table, in the lobby, first of all y'all, I mix words up all the time. I say the wrong word all of the time and I'm probably gonna knock my water bottle off. So when that happens, I want some like real knee slapping, okay, I need some serious laughter so that I feel okay about it. So I'm going to start with um, my meditation verse. So every week I write down a verse or a passage um, and I just kind of meditated on it through the week and I try to memorize it. Um, And so last week, it was about Thursday or Friday when I realized that my meditation verse just happened to be one that was perfect for what we're doing tonight. It's Psalm 105 verses one through five. It says, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Proclaim his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell about all his wondrous works. Honor his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wondrous works he has done, his wonders and the judgment he has pronounced. I just wanna start there and pray. Heavenly Father, we honor you. Church, I just encourage you that right there where you are in your own heart or even out loud, let's honor the Lord for the wondrous works that He has done. Lord, I give you honor and praise for the healing that you've done in my life, for the deliverance that I've experienced, for this opportunity that I get to come up here and share. It's it's my story, I lived it, but Lord, it's your story. This is just a picture of who you are and what you've done and your goodness and your power. And I pray, Father, that tonight we will, you will be honored. May your works be remembered. May our hearts be stirred with faith and hope for you and what you can do and that there's no limit at all in our lives, that the power of God cannot, there's nothing in our lives that the power of God cannot take care of. And we trust you, we thank you, we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. So my story is one of healing. Um, It's one of deliverance. And it's one of redemption. But it's also a story of abuse. Um, It's a story of brokenness and a story of shame. And I'm not... (laughs) I uh, text my best friend tonight, and I was like, hey, I need you to tell me that it's okay if I share my whole story and uh, she was like, listen, if God has put you, given you this opportunity, it's OK to share your whole story. And then all on my way here, my heart was pounding. And I was like, oh, I'm just so nervous. And this idea of safety, like, is my heart safe here? Is my story safe here? I'm used to sharing my story with people that know me. They know I'm ridiculous. They're not shocked anymore by the things that come out of my mouth. But I've not done something like this before with a room filled with people who don't know me. And then we sang that second song, and it just said, I'm safe with you. And I thought, oh God, I am safe with him. He's here, his presence is here, and I'm safe to share this stuff, so I'm so excited. But I wanna point out that some of the things I say might be triggering, um, and it's okay if you get triggered. It's okay if it's hard to hear. And some of it is going to be hard to hear. Like I said, I'm going to use some adult language. Um, I just want you to know that it's okay if you get triggered. It's okay if you feel anxious. It's okay if you want to jump up and run away. I have sometimes wanted to jump up and run away. If I jump up and run away, somebody stop me, okay? We've got some things to talk about. I trust that the Lord, who is good is going to be good to you tonight, just like I trust that he's going to be good to me, and we're going to get to experience that goodness. So we'll just get into it then. Uh, My story begins with dysfunction. All all of the dysfunction. um, Grew up in a home where there was alcoholism, domestic violence, uh, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, divorce. then when I was nine, so that was just in the home. I'm one girl, four brothers. uh, So all of that, just growing up with a bunch of boys and being the only girl. Um, And then when I was nine, uh, I began to be sexually sexually abused by my father. And um, it began... With molestation, and it progressed over about the next six months uh, to rape and it lasted about two years. Um, it stopped when I was at school one day, and somebody said, "Well, I bet I have a bigger secret than you do," and I said, "I bet you don 't <laughs> and so I told them um, I told them what had been happening, and so One thing uh, led to another and we ended up, I told a teacher and the authorities got involved and um, my father was arrested and I testified against him and he was convicted and sentenced to 420 years plus life in prison. Oh, I wouldn't y'all. And then he was murdered about eight months later. So that happened when I was 14. Um, So, but by that point, by 14, that's the hardest part. There's other hard stuff, but that's the hardest part. Um, By the time I was 14, I was already sexually active and had been sexually active for quite some time because that's what child abuse does. Um, It sends you looking for love anywhere you can find it. And also by that point, I had been told for years... (laughs) Um, Like I mentioned, there was a lot of verbal and emotional abuse in my house growing up. So by the time I was 14, I had been told for years that I was dumb, I was lazy, I was loser, I was worthless, I was stupid, and some specific words were spoken over me on a regular basis, and they were slut and whore. And I heard them all the time. It didn't matter if I had done something wrong, if someone else had done something wrong. That was the language that was spoken over me. And I was determined as a 13, 14-year-old girl, that I wouldn't be that. I wouldn't be a slut. I wouldn't be a whore. I wouldn't do those things. But that's what sexual abuse does. Um, Sexual abuse taught me that I couldn't trust my own instincts, and I couldn't trust my own boundaries. It taught me that saying no was pointless. Um, And it taught me that sexual attention was better than the kind of attention I normally got at home. So... There we were, 14 years old, and um, all through my teenage years, sexually active. And then uh, at 17, by the grace of God, I got pregnant. (laughs) And uh, my boyfriend and I got married. And we just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary last Saturday. He's pretty awesome. I think I'll keep him. And that's that, y'all. God is so good. Um, And really, though, as I was writing that out, I was like, oh, that does sum up my story. Because it looks successful and easy, like, oh, pregnant at 17 and married, and now 25 years. Like, oh, that's so easy. No, (laughs) not easy. Um, It looks like things are easy. It looks like we've got it all figured out. But the truth is always so much messier than that. Uh, The truth is that I came into marriage with a lot of baggage, obviously. The sexual abuse, the verbal abuse, the murder, the domestic violence, all of that stuff. I had only ever seen men treated with disrespect. You know, some families like grew up watching whatever normal families watched. We grew up watching Married with Children. And I don't know if you guys ever watched Married with Children, but poor Al, so sad. But that's how I was raised. Men were treated like trash. I had never seen children treated like, treated with respect or with honor or with dignity. I had only ever seen children treated like trash. Um, and I brought that into my marriage and into our family. We had our um, first two kids before I turned 21. And I parented them for years the same way that I had been parented. And it took... Years to learn what being in a loving, healthy relationship looked like. Um, it took a lot of years, a lot of healing, a lot of growth, a lot of discipleship, a lot of reading my Bible every single day, letting the Lord just rewrite and rewrite and rewrite everything in my heart. Um, and along the way, in between getting married and whenever all of those things had been worked out in the years that passed, I caused wounds to my husband, and I caused, excuse me, wounds to my children, some that the Lord is still healing to this day. My oldest are 24 and 21, and the Lord's still healing things that I, wounds that I caused when they were little, Um, but for years, and I mean years and years, I couldn't acknowledge it. I couldn't acknowledge the wrong that I'd done to my family. Um, I couldn't acknowledge the wounds that I'd caused, because I had so much shame, so much shame. I didn't know I had shame. Uh, If you had asked me, hey, Emily, do you have shame? (laughs) No, absolutely not, I don't. Um, I thought it was fine. Like, I had given my heart to the Lord. Nah, hold on. That's not, that's inaccurate. Let me say it again. I had accepted salvation um, as a 13-year-old Mormon girl in a Baptist church camp, you guys. And I'll just let you use your imagination to figure out how that went. Um, and then at 20, my husband and I had been married for a few years, and he had been wanting to go to church, but I had had all of those experiences. <laughs> growing up Mormon in a Baptist town. And so I didn't, uh, didn't want to go until I finally said, yes, we could go. We went to a large church in Tulsa because I didn't want to know anyone, and I didn't want anybody to know me. Um, I didn't want anybody to know my story or what I had experienced or about my dad or anything like that. Um, and so we were there for about three years, and the Lord moved us um, to the church we're in now, which is Destiny Life Church here in town, and we've been members there for 20 years. And again, doesn't that just sound so easy? <laughs> like, oh, 20 years have passed. In that 20 years, there's a lot of hard things that have happened, a lot of growth, and I'll say this again later, but growth is hard, you guys. <laughs> like, growth is not easy. Healing is not easy. Um, So in the next 10 years after the Lord moved us to destiny life, I really did heal from so much. Um, The consequences of sexual abuse, the consequences of verbal abuse, the trauma of losing my dad the way that I did, so much um, healed in my life. And I had grown so much. And honestly, I did so much. I led a life group. Um, I spoke taught a sexual wholeness session at encounter retreats for years. I taught kids' church. I did all of the things. I was on the prayer team. I served in all of the ways. Um, my marriage was flourishing. Our kids were doing fine. Like, all of, all of this to say it looked so good. Um, but on the inside, it was a totally different story. And I wasn't even aware of how different the story was on the inside of my heart. So uh, one thing that you probably know is that abuse and trauma can make us all respond in different ways. And all of that is just coping. Um, We learn to cope. Some of us turn to drugs or to alcohol or to sex or to something like that. Um, Some of us cope by performing by putting up a really good show and a really good front to make it look like we're doing a whole lot better than we, were, than we are, um, by convincing ourselves and the rest of the world that we're doing great. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, I worked hard to earn a place um, that I didn't believe that I deserved. And not only was I working hard to earn a place in like, serving in the church, um, but I was working hard to earn my place in God's heart. I really believed that I had to do all of the things so that God would love me, that I had to earn my keep, so to speak. Like, Jesus gave me this free gift of salvation, Now I gotta earn it, is how I believe. And I didn't know. If you had asked me, oh, Emily, do you believe that? No. Um... If you had asked me if I believed I had to earn God's love, I would have said, no, I don't believe that at all. Uh, I knew what the Bible said. I could have just quoted you the story in John 15 of the prodigal son and how his father went out every single day to look for him and how when he finally came home, his dad ran out to meet him. And I knew my place in that story. I knew that I was the child wrapped up in the father's arms despite all the muck and all the mud and all the stink and just loved so unconditionally. I knew it, but I did not know it. Um, Then in 2011, uh, I lost someone that was very close to me. So she was my aunt, um, but she was also my best friend. And she had moved out of state before I was born and um, had moved back. And she'd only lived back in Oklahoma about four years. We'd only been friends for about two years, but in that time, we became so close. She was the first member of my family, adult female member, to love me. I mean, I'm sure my mom loves me. My grandma loved me. Every, You know, they loved me, but they didn't know me. And my Aunt Nadine took the time to get to know me. And she was the first time that I felt seen and loved and chosen. Like, she chose to spend time with me every week. She rearranged her schedule to spend time with me. And that did something in me I had never experienced before. And so when she passed, I was I was devastated. Um, and I didn't realize it for months afterwards, but she had come to represent the love of God to me. And so losing her felt like losing the love of God. And I even remember when she was in the hospital and um, she was um, on a, the ventilator, and I just remember thinking like, if you die, who's gonna love me? <laughs> I didn't know that I believed deep down the answer was no one, but it is what I believed. And it, it, when she was gone, that was the, the fear that came up. Um, and suddenly I couldn't do all of the things that I had been doing to earn my place. My ho- I, I kind of picture my life as like a house on stilts, you know, you go to the ocean and there are these houses. Up on stilts, and uh, that's kind of how I picture my house. And the loss of my aunt Nadine, grief, I would say, slowly knocked every single one of those stilts out from under me. I could no longer perform. I could no longer teach kids' church. I could no longer read my Bible. I could no longer pray. I could no longer stand up right during the worship service at church. I couldn't do any of the things, because all I could, I was grieving so much more than the loss of a person. I was grieving so much more than I even understood. And suddenly I was terrified of the craziest things. Um, My husband and I at that point had been married for 13 years, and suddenly I was just convinced that he was gonna leave me. Like he was gonna wake up one day and be like, what the heck am I doing with this woman Like, he was gonna wake up and just realize that I am nothing. Um, I had this thought in my mind, like, if he knew me, I mean, if he really knew me, then he'd be out. Um, There's no way he could love me if he knew. I never got quite close enough to it to know knew what. Like, if he knew what, I I didn't know. I just knew that um, it was really clear that I needed some help. There was something very deep uh, going on and I needed to get some help. So I did what I always did. I called my, our, my friend and pastor, Linnae, and I went to her for some personal ministry. And as we were talking, she did a thing. She's always telling me what to do. She told me uh, that I needed to write my story. Now, I had been teaching um, kids church. I had been doing that. I had been teaching at encounter retreats at that point for years. And every time I do that, I tell my story. So I had told my story like a million times. And I think she could see in my face. She was like, Emily, you need to write your story. That's not how she sounds. And I was like, and she said, um, she pointed out that I had written my story many times, and I had shared my story many times, but I had only ever shared what I thought would help other people. I had only shared as much as I thought other people could relate to. I was writing it for an audience. I wasn't writing it for myself. Hadn't written it to connect with God and to experience his truth. And so that's what she told me to do. Um, And I did. And again, that sounds so much easier (laughs) than it actually was because it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. It was terrifying because I knew the parts of my story that I had never told, and I was horrified by those parts. Um, I was horrified by the things that I had done. I was horrified um, by what I believed those things said about me. So writing (sighs) out. writing about what it felt like to be woken up by sexual abuse and trying to get away and being completely powerless. It really um, made me face that feeling that I was weak and incapable, which is something that had just followed me all of those years. So writing about the way I slept around meant facing that I really was the slut I had been told that I was. And then writing about how sometimes during the sexual abuse, some of the things that happened felt good. And facing that part, writing it down, was the worst of all because I knew that that fact proved that I was the most disgusting, gross piece of filth that has ever been created. I knew that I was disgusting. I knew that I was a piece of trash. I knew that that's who I was. And I knew that there was something major wrong with me that could never be fixed. So writing my story, writing all of that and more, stuff that I really don't have time uh, to even get into, was the hardest thing that I've ever done up to that point but it was also the most freeing because I didn't know I believed those lies that I just said until I wrote them down. They had been in here. They were doing their thing. They were the ones in charge this whole time, but I didn't even know I believed them. Um, So writing them down, facing them, allowed the Lord to begin to speak truth to things and then sharing my whole story with my husband for the first time allowed him to start healing from the wounds that I'd caused. Um, it had ushered in a new season of freedom and of healing in our marriage that we had never seen before. And I would like to say, that's the end. <laughs> no. Um, I would like to say that it was all rainbows and unicorns after that, that it was all easy peasy. Um, but really, it was just the, the real healing was just beginning. Um, And you guys know this, healing is hard. Healing from your past is probably the hardest thing that you'll ever do. Um, Because running from it is the easiest thing that we'll ever do, at least in the short term. Um, Facing all of the things that lurk in the darkness of our hearts requires um, courage. It requires perseverance Pretending those things don't exist only requires a little bit of a denial. And I had buckets, buckets of denial. I lived in denial. Denial was my happy, safe place. But that wasn't where I was anymore. I had to get to that place where I no longer denied these things were there and learned to walk through, the, uh, walk through them with the Lord. So that day that I wrote my story and I shared it with my husband, the Lord healed the shame that I felt about those things, Um, but there was a lot more shame to go because deep down, I really did believe that if you stripped everything away, um, if you stripped away everything that I was doing, all of the serving, all of the praying for people, all of the ministering, all of the leading, all of the stuff that looks good when you're standing up with a microphone, if you stripped all of that away at the very center beneath it all was the real me and that me was nothing but a stupid lazy, worthless slut, irredeemably broken, just irreparable. And I believe deep down that that's who I was. So despite all of the healing that came from sharing my story, from confronting it for the first time, um, when things got hard, which they inevitably did, inevitably did because things get hard, um, I responded the same way that I always did. I should know better. I should be over this by now. I should be able to handle this. And uh, you hear the word should in there. I say this a lot. Should is the language of shame. If you hear yourself saying should, like oh, shame. Um, If you find yourself, this is in my notes, but this is what I found to be true. When I find myself feeling anxious and fearful of judgment, also shame. So tonight, when I text my friend Tierney and was like, hey, I need you to tell me if it's okay if I share my whole story. That was shame. Now, these days, I have been healed enough of it to know what to do with it. You confront it, identify it, act in the opposite spirit. Shame would have kept me at home under a blanket watching Jane the Virgin. Not that we're watching that right now, you guys. It's just an example. Um, But that's not where the Lord has me, thank God. (laughs) I'm just so grateful for healing and freedom in my life. So a few years later when something happened um, that caused a disappointment and I had a sleepless night. Um, And I had had insomnia issues since my wedding night. Like I literally went from all of this trauma, couple of years passed, now I'm married, sleeping in the same bed with a man every night, not feeling safe at all, but completely unaware that I didn't feel safe. So yeah. I didn't sleep well for like 20 years. But in the midst of all of this, um, it was in 2015, it was in July, it was on my birthday actually, so my 35th birthday, did not get any sleep that night, and then I didn't get any sleep the next night, uh, or the next night, and then, because I told myself that I should be able to sleep, and that I was being ridiculous, I didn't go to the doctor for two weeks. So two weeks of sleepless nights, <sighs> I finally went to the doctor. It took another week for them to give me the right medication, um, to get the right dosage, for me to start getting a little bit of sleep. But then literally two years passed, and I would go days without sleeping, sometimes weeks. The longest I ever went was three weeks, with very little to zero sleep. I would have said zero sleep. Can a person live for three weeks without sleeping at all? I have no idea, but I feel like I did it. And I was taking handfuls of prescription drugs, you guys. Like the Lord, or the, the Lord. Hmm. The doctor was like, here, you just take these and just take these drugs and take more. And it's fine. Just keep taking them. Maybe he didn't say that. Maybe that was my interpretation. But I was still not sleeping. Um, so a sane person, a healed person, would have stopped to rest. But I did not do that. I kept doing all of the things in those two years. I kept leading, I was, um, I was leading. I had started a women's ministry and I was leading that. I had, was still just doing all of the things, all the stuff that looks good and easy and fun. I was still doing all of that, but inside I was barely functioning. I was so exhausted um, all of the time and I didn't believe I deserved to feel tired. I believed that I should be able to sleep. And if I couldn't, then that meant the Lord believed I uh, should be able to function anyway. And can we just talk? Can we just stop for a minute and just think about how stupid that is to think that, well, the Lord gave me this, so he must think I should be able to handle it. No, no, it's not biblical, you guys. I don't have a whole lot of time to get into that, but it's not biblical. (laughs) But I didn't even know that that was what was going on. Um... I just knew that I couldn't, I was supposed to be doing all of the things to earn my place. I was supposed to be doing all of these things and I couldn't do them anymore. So finally there came a season where the Lord was very clear that I needed to rest and I did, physically at least. Um, But not doing all of the things, not leading, not ministering, not doing all of those things meant that I wasn't earning my place which brought even more shame and brought even more shoulds. So um, eventually, about a year and a half into that stretch of insomnia, I was so just exhausted and depressed that I became suicidal. And I was too ashamed. I think I had told one person that I was struggling with depression. Maybe two, but I don't think so. I think it was just one. And... Um, I was just so ashamed because what did I have to feel? What, what did I have to be depressed about? Like my life was perfect. My husband is awesome. My kids are great. All of these awesome things were going on. How dare I feel depressed? That's that. That inner voice is a real jerk sometimes, you guys. <laughs> so, but that's how I felt. Like I shouldn't even feel this way. So I couldn't tell anybody how I was feeling, um, and I couldn't shake this hopeless feeling that insomnia and depression were my whole life. That they were my whole future, that they were who I really was, that this lie I had been telling myself, that I had been healed, and that all of these God had done so many awesome things in my life, that that was just a lie, that the truth was depression, the truth was insomnia, the truth was hopelessness. Um, and I can't tell you really how close I came to taking my own life, um, just out of sheer despair and hopelessness. Uh, But the Lord intervened, and through text message, um, I got a text from a friend who had no idea what I was going on, what was going on with me, or what I was struggling with. She had no clue. It was just the Lord, and the text just said simply, I'm with you. And it was enough um, to get me through the week. And then that weekend, there was a women's conference, and I went to drug myself bawling through the whole thing, literally snot dripping. It was fantastic. <laughs> but the Lord used that to deliver me from suicidality, from suicidal thoughts, and I've not had another one since then. But do you know what he didn't deliver me from? Insomnia and depression. I mean, he did. Eventually, he did. But he didn't just snap his godly fingers and bring me out of those things. He taught me how to walk with him in it. And he walked me through it. He didn't deliver me out of it. He walked me through it. Um, Somewhere in the midst of all of that, there was some really neat things going on in our lives. We, um, my husband and I, we were um, certified to adopt through the Cherokee Nation. So in the midst of that, our youngest son was placed with us. And then um, we finalized our adoption of him the same week or the same month that I graduated from college. Like there was a lot of really great stuff going on. And also in the midst of that, and I wish that I could explain how it happened, the Lord healed my identity And I don't know really how to explain that, except one minute, as I said, I knew that if you had stripped it all away deep down, underneath every awesome looking thing that I did, was that stupid, worthless slut. That's who I was on the inside. And then within the next breath, I knew that if you had stripped everything away, everything that had been done to me, everything that had been spoken over me, everything that I had done, all of the sins I'd committed, all the hurts that I'd perpetuated against my family, if you stripped all of those away, there at the center would be the real me. And instead of that stupid, worthless slut, that real me was his daughter. And it made all of the difference. But in the midst of that, I didn't know how to be a daughter All I had ever been was a spiritual and emotional orphan. You know, you picture an orphan on the street working and and stealing and fighting for just every scrap of attention, every scrap of provision. That was me. And then as a daughter, I didn't know how to rest. I didn't know how to trust that the Lord was gonna take care of me. I didn't have a clue how to do that. Um, And so the Lord taught me. He walked with me through that process of how to rest. He walked with me through it. And I wish that I could tell you like exactly what that looked like, but it will look different for you than it looked for me. I'm a journaler, and this is the only should you will ever hear from me. Hold on, there are only two shoulds you will ever hear from me. You should be reading your Bibles. <laughs> you deserve it. You deserve to invest in yourself in that way. You deserve to invest in your future. You deserve the time that it takes to read your Bible every day. You should do that. Should number two, you should be journaling. (laughs) All of you, get a journal and start writing down all of the things. No, this dude over here, he's like, "Mm, I'm not doing that. Listen, everybody but that guy, read your Bible and get a journal, So the Lord taught me how to be his his daughter by journaling. I just started writing everything out. And when I would start feeling depressed, this is what would come out of me. I am depressed, or I am anxious, or I am exhausted. But I am his daughter, and that is enough. If I never lead another group, I am his daughter, and that is enough. If I never write another book, if I never, any of the things I'm his daughter, and that is enough. If I stay depressed and exhausted for every other minute I have left on this earth, I'm his daughter, and that is enough. So there's a story um, in the Bible that I wanna share as I wrap up, and it's a familiar story. Uh, It's the woman with the issue of blood. It's Mark 5, 25 through 34. I should have had it up here for you guys to read along with me. Uh, but I don't. So open your Bibles or your phones uh, and Google if you would like, Mark 5. Um, It says, Now a woman was suffering from bleeding for 12 years. Um, A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, dude. You see the crown, and yet you're wondering who touched you? Come on. But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came down and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction." So when I read that, I picture Jesus walking through the crowd and he's got his disciples. And in the story, like Jairus has come to him and said like, hey, my daughter's dying, please come. And he's like, okay. So he's in a rush and they're rushing to Jairus' house. And when she touched him and she was healed, the work was done. Like there was no reason for Jesus to stop. And there was no reason for Jesus to look for her, but he did. And I feel that in my story where the Lord had done some work. He had done some pretty major healing, and he could have been done with me. He could have left me in all of that, and I would have been okay. Um, But he didn't. He stopped, and he looked around for me. And then when he spoke to her, he didn't say, woman. He didn't call her by her name. He said to her, daughter, he spoke over her words of identity. He spoke to her who she truly was. And this woman had experienced shame. She had experienced rejection. She had not been allowed to be with people. Um, She would have had to wander around yelling, unclean, unclean, so that people knew not to touch her. We're talking about someone whose husband would have left her, whose family would have rejected her. She would have been just shame, just shame all the way around. And the Lord didn't keep walking after he had healed her. He stopped and he spoke those words over her and he said, Daughter. He spoke to her identity. And then he said, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace you know, there are only two times in the Gospels that Jesus tells someone to go in peace. One is here, and one is when there's that known sinner, the woman who came and anointed his feet with oil and washed his his feet with her hair. Those are the only two times that he said to go in peace. And I have a whole sermon I could preach about that. (laughs) Um, I love this. You should look it up, Isaiah 54, verses nine and 10. It says, um, for this is like the days of Noah to me, Just as um, when the waters of Noah covered the earth, so as I I swore. Hold on, you guys. I have this whole thing memorized. Just as I swore when the waters of Noah um, would never cover the earth again, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you or rebuke you. Um, My compassionate love will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be broken. And when I read that, I was like, I don't have any idea what covenant of peace means. (laughs) Took a year of meditating on it and asking the Lord to show me, and he did. And it's this powerful understanding of a covenant, this two-way agreement where I'm at peace with God. I have peace. That's what it says in Romans 5.1. We have peace with God through Christ. Um, But that covenant of peace means that God is at peace with us. God is at peace with me. And that's what he was telling this woman who had experienced all of that shame and all of that rejection. He was at peace with her. He wasn't angry with her. He wasn't disappointed. He wasn't frustrated. He was at peace with her. He didn't care what she'd done or hadn't done or what she'd experienced or hadn't experienced. He was at peace with her. Peace is the opposite of shame because shame is earning Shame is hiding. Shame is working so hard to hide the real you, the real me from the rest of the world. And peace is just getting to rest in the fact that Jesus loves me. He gave his life for me. He's not angry or upset with me. I'm his favorite daughter, you guys. You are his favorite sons and his favorite daughters. We get to live in that peace. So all of that said, I'm going to pray. I'm going to make myself available. I would love to pray with you um, at the end. Whenever we're done here, I'm getting ready to hand the microphone back, but I just want to pray over you. Heavenly Father, you are good. God, you are so good. Your goodness is, is so much bigger than we understand or realize or recognize that we are even capable of grasping. My prayer tonight, Lord, is that somehow through all of these stories that I've shared, that your glory will shine through, that hope will be stirred in each one of these hearts. And the things that, I mean, if I were to look at my story, there are many, many things that I would have said, that is impossible to heal. I'm gonna carry that with me for the rest of my life. And yet here I stand completely free of them. So Father, my prayer is that tonight, if there are people in this room who could point to something and would say, I will carry that with me for the rest of my life. That thing that I did, I'm gonna carry that with me. That thing that happened to me, I'm gonna be wounded by that for the rest of my life. Lord, I pray that hope will stir up so strong that the Holy Spirit inside of them will say, no, no, no. We don't have to struggle with these things. We don't have to fall down under them. We don't have to carry the weight of that stuff with us forever, Lord, because you have taken it. And that's such an easy thing to say. Christianity is full of those things where we're just like, oh, it's all rainbows and butterflies. It's just hard, Lord. We can say that healing is hard. Trusting you is hard. Looking to you when we've always looked to ourselves is hard. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will do what only you can do because you are. We sang that song tonight. You're the only one who can. Lord, you are the only one that can turn these graves into gardens. You are the only one who could have turned my shame into glory and you did it and it's beautiful. I thank you, Father, that we get to rest in that. We can rest in hope knowing that You've done it once. You will do it again and again and again. And I pray over each one of these men and women, Lord, that you will teach them specifically in a new way what walking with you looks like. What does it look like to walk with you step by step, to rest when you rest, to run when you run, to wait when you wait, and to feel at peace in that and knowing that it's just okay if we're not okay. It's okay if we feel broken. It's okay if we feel depressed. It's okay if we feel anxious. It's okay because you're at peace with us. Settle those things in our heart, Lord. We love you. We honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.